You can fall into those moments of pure, intrinsic meaning and joy. Look for those areas in your life where it's possible to find the vestiges of that sense of meaningful activity. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be talking about a subject that is probably in everybody's minds or in everybody's body, whether you realize it or not. Wouldn't you say that is true, T-Roy? Yeah, maybe this will be a revelation, and then everyone will all of a sudden have the epiphany that they're suffering from burnout. Maybe you'll be that's right. burned out of listening to this podcast. No, Maybe that's we not won't possible. even finish. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to give them blue balls. <laughs> uh, that's right. This week we're going to be talking about the phenomenon known as burnout inspired by an article by is it sarah is it jaffe is that how you say sarah jaffe that's how i say it in my head i know that i listened to some podcasts with her but i can't for the life of me remember if that's exactly how you pronounce it okay so sarah jaff or jaffe um it's j-a-f-f-e um that she wrote in descent magazine what's the title of the article for people if they want to pause now and read it yeah it's called emotions on strike Cool. So we're going to use that as our uh, launch point, and we're going to BS a little bit. Troy's going to kind of give us the basics of her argument, and uh, as he put in a text message, he's going to basically give me some alley-oops. So this is my <laughs> dream of being uh, Kobe, you know, or, uh, or you know, Shaq, or somebody who's on the receiving end of a big dunk, usually. Zion. Um, yeah, well, fuck. Oh, yes, this is my this is my form of Zionism, okay? <laughs> Zionism, Zionism, but the good kind of the Williamson variety. The dunks kind um, and not on Palestinians. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about in the main segment. Of course, we do want to just give you a quick reminder that our merch page is up. If you want to go to owlsatdawn.com, you can check out our merch page. We've got mugs and we've got tote bags. My tote bag actually just came in the mail, and it's fucking awesome because I carry it with me wherever I go. And it's got the cartoon <laughs> It's got the cartoon on it that says, Fuck Heidegger. And I think I get the best looks from people when they're like, "Who? what the fuck is going on with that? And I'm just hoping... I just can't wait for someone who's a philosophy nerd one day to be like, oh, that's awesome. And I'll be like, yeah, I know. I'm just waiting. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I sometimes I like I, – when I hear people having intelligent conversations at cafes, I like put my tote bag and I turn it so that they'll like see it because <laughs> I'm like, can I, can I like initiate contact with them? But um, So you can check all that shit out at owlsatdawn.com. It's on the merch page. Uh, you can follow us on Insta, you can email us, all that good shit. And then the last thing I'm going to say, just because opening week is next week, I talked about it in the last episode, if you want to support your boy, if you want to support indie theater, if you want to see a cracker of a show, a fucking rocking play that's an American classic written by Sam Shepard about the kind of decline of the wit, the, the myth of the West, I'm starring in a play called True West. Uh, it's only a one-week run. If you're in Sydney, you can come live. If you're not in Sydney... 
We have a streaming option that is available. It would really mean a lot if you can check this out, if you can participate in what is like my number one passion, of course, after Owls at Dawn, which is, you know, like <laughs> before, like that's like before one. That's like the zero point. Pre-passional. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pre-passional. Um, but yeah, uh, is to see this is the first show that I've done on stage in a handful of years. Um, so it's amazing to get back in that. But uh, yeah, so it's called True West. You can go to truewestsydney.com to buy tickets to the streaming service. There are two options for the stream, and if you buy tickets for that, you can have access to the video for up to a week after the performance because, you know, time changes and the spherical planet is kind of weird, so actually watching it live might be difficult for you um, depending on where you are in the world. So you can watch it live, which is an option for some of you. And if you can't watch it live and because you're busy, you have obligations, whatever, you can check out the archive at any point after. And it's going to be fucking amazing. We've got this amazing video production team that's actually doing it. Uh, they're called Undefined Media. They're at, they do like fucking amazing high-quality stuff. So truewestsydney.com where you can purchase those tickets. And they're cheap as chips, man. They're $15 uh, Australian, which is like 12 bucks US, like 9 pounds British, like 10 euro. So it's cheaper than going to the fucking movies. And it's a better show than 99% of the shit that's out there. So I'm trying to sell you on this because I'm also producing and we need to re- we need to get our investment <laughs> back. So that's another thing that I'm hoping that we can do. So support your boy. Go buy those tickets. TrueWestSydney.com. I'll put a link down below. But TrueWestSydney.com. Hook us up and check yeah, out some great theater. I'll second this because I'm very excited about it. Um, not only because of what you've told me about some of the dramatic shocking features of the play yeah um but also i've i've seen you know most of the shorts you've been in i think um but i've never seen you live right on stage right so it'd be better to actually be there and to see it but i'll, I'll enjoy watching it from my tv yeah, and you know what? The space is such an intimate space that the live stream is going to still, I think, as best as possible, give um, a, a lot of that intensity and that immersion. That um, That's why we chose this particular space, as a matter of fact. We wanted the audience to be like on top of us. And so we think that um, that the video production is going to be very similar. It's it's going to be like you're, it, it's right on top of us. So, it's, like a, it's like a minor threat show in the early 80s. Dude, that no, it, no it, stage. it's such a yeah, no stage. That's it, man. Yeah, no border between audience and and band. That that's my shit, man. That's what I like, you know. <laughs> that's what I in theater. That's what I want. And this is a fucking punk rock show. I've really gotten into since you sent me a little bit of it. Uh, Hank Williams the third, and <laughs> he calls himself he calls himself a hellbilly, and that has been like perfect motivation for me when I'm going into rehearsals. <laughs> no, that's like, actually it's just perfect. Fucking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, just fucking shit up, drinking six packs, and just don't give a shit. He has that song PFF, where it's just punch, fight, fuck. I'm like, oh my god, who is this guy? This is not Hank. Wi- this no, is not, not Hank Williams. What the fuck? This his granddaddy yeah, turning over in his grave. Yeah, <laughs> but it's fucking great. It's been that kind of chaos, and it's and it's and it's an amazing exploration too of like the male psyche. It's directed by a woman. And our assistant director is a woman, and our production manager is a woman. And so there's also this really kind of lovely, I would say, like shadow of the feminine that is um, that is cast over the play as we're exploring the, the psyche of these two brothers that are dealing with their family trauma, but also kind of telling a story about their pent-up resentments about America and the decline of American dominance and the decline of, like, westward expansion and all of those myths that accompany that. But there's also the feminine voice isn't left out in um, 
in in a lot of ways, and we're trying to bring that out as much as possible because even though it's not explicitly addressed that much, I don't want to ruin when it is addressed, um, uh, it's always there haunting. You know, because it takes place in their mother's home. And so there's the domestic. There is the feminine that is there. And it's a very interesting contrast if you're tuned into those things. So I just, yeah, it's a really fucking rich play. Sam Shepard is a goddamn genius. I'm in love with it. I'm falling in love with Americana again, Troy, in a particular way. And it's all thanks to Sam Shepard and you. You guys have led me down the path to some beautiful dark Appalachian music and shit like that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm finding a new purpose here. So... Thank you, guys. But yeah, so check that out, truewestsydney.com, uh, and get your streaming tickets, or come live. We'd love to see you live. Yeah, and hopefully, um, talking about that, uh, what'd you call it, that like haunting of the feminine over this whole thing, Yeah, that's something the kind of thing we could talk about in the podcast afterwards. I'll have to have my, uh, Fuck yes. my critical eye on. Please do. Please do. Yeah, it'll be sweet. Okay, so no more of that shit. Admin's all taken care of. Let's get into the show. As always, what we got to do is we got to start off with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off at the moment. Got to get it off our chest. Got to have a moment of catharsis. That's what theater was originally for. You know, this is really a theatrical production, if you think about it, in the classic Greek sense, Troy. This is all about that catharsis. So, Troy, (laughs) what is your thing that you're going to get off of your chest my friend yeah i think you're much better at the theatrical part of the shitty minute than i am but uh i I would say i'll try my best but i'm probably not even going to try my best um (laughs) my shitty minute this week so it's not even for really this week so much as the last few months to maybe even a couple of years i've seen this phenomenon and it just recently got to the point where i wanted to address it because of how much it bugged me and that's the phenomenon of making analogies or comparisons between um, the MAGA types and um, sort of international terror movements. So, you know, like vanilla ISIS is in reference to like the, the people who stormed the Capitol and stuff, or Yal Qaeda is another one. Have you oh, seen gosh. either of those? No, but I can already feel some sort of grossness in Yal Qaeda. Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. For like three seconds before it becomes incredibly annoying, right? Um, yeah. And I I get that people, if you're going to give the, the most like good faith interpretation of that, it's trying to say something like the MAGA types aren't just a bunch of clowns who are LARPing, but they're actually dangerous. Here, here's another yes. dangerous movement, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, right? Um, and so like the best good faith interpretation you can give is that that's the, the reason for these kind of comparisons, right? But I think even that, if, if that's like the best you can do, there are so many other reasons why this is bad and wrong that it should just stop immediately. One, probably even just the sort of least pertinent reason is it's, it's kind of racist, <laughs> right? That's um, what I was thinking immediately, yeah. Yeah, but even that, I don't even want to address that too much because that's not even on my purview or really the issue that I think is not – that's sort of, I think, obvious to most people. Um, or maybe not racist, but bigot. it's definitely bigoted, right? What's the distinction you're making there? Well, because is it a race that they're – or is it more of like a cultural, a cultural kind of subgroup, right? Like a socioeconomic class um, – like it depends on, I guess, how we define what a race is, right? But – so like, like what are we thinking? Like why why do you think it's racist? Oh, I mean, again, I don't want to too, dwell too much on this, but I think just the sense that it's 
it's sort of appealing to anybody who has grievances um, with sort of global empire of the of the uh, the global American empire um, is basically to be as dismissed as margotypes, right? As if they're reacting mm. to the same kind of things, or if they're as similarly buffoonish, or if they're similarly um, to be treated, right? It's sort of painting with a broad yeah. brush in a way that's you know stereotypical and and kind of classically racist in that way. Okay, yeah, I, I yeah, okay, yeah, I feel you because I feel like there's also some classism in there. But this is your shitty minute. I'm going to shut up. You go ahead. No, I think so too. But I, I don't even want to address that too much because I think that's not even an issue that okay. I, um, that I think yeah. is worth bringing out here. Um, the biggest yeah. reason why I think it's a problem is that we don't need to make analogies to international terror movements or deal with the complexities of, well, in what sense does do the people um, who mm. are in Al-Qaeda or in ISIS, as much as they're clearly engaging in many evil actions, maybe they have grievances that are worth addressing while also condemning the actions. I don't want to get into that level of complexity, right? You don't even have to get into that level of complexity because you don't have to make those analogies. There's a history mm. of fascist terror movements in American history, right? And in fact, mm. they're older than these things, right? Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you're talking about you know, the Mujahideen um, in like, what, 50s and 60s is when the Mujahideen first started forming in like Afghanistan. Um, I don't know the, the the longer history of that, but you're talking, when you're talking about American terrorist movements, you're talking about like slave patrols and the KKK, mm. much older, right? much longer traditions. And not only are they much older, much longer, they're obviously American in origin, right? So they're going to have more commonalities with whatever this new movement is um, than things that are happening in far off places that are in very different social political circumstances, right? But they also just are much more similar. Like people are often having trouble dealing with the fact that, or sort of um, putting together the fact that the people who stormed the Capitol both seem to be incredibly buffoonish, like they're LARPing, right? You watch the videos of people in the Capitol. They're kind of like walking around like tourists, like, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this illegal thing, snapping selfies of each other, committing federal crimes and shit like that, right? Like it's really just kind of um, silly and ridiculous while also seeing like some of these people are in full camo and have zip ties and we're clearly intending to do a lot of damage, right? Maybe even like kidnap, hold hostage, kill, whatever. Um Combining those two things seems very difficult. But you know what was also silly and ridiculous? The fucking clan, right? They're walking around in hoods, burning crosses and shit. Like, they're ridiculous. Um, but they're also extremely deadly, right? So there's a long history of combining both of those both of those things. It's also a way of sort of making your movement look like it's not that dangerous when um, you have this buffoonish, clownish side, right? Um, I think you can not... We've also talked on the podcast before about how Trump and Boris Johnson also kind of use that to their advantage. The And Boris Johnson probably more, much more consciously than Trump does, right? The sort of clownish exterior um, is a way of um, disarming um, when the criticisms come, since we expect someone who's has authoritarian tendencies to be much more like the classic, you know, hair slicked back, very stern demeanor. And when they're not that way, um, it's easy to be disarmed. Now, all that the point that I want to make, and that I think is important, is just we should make more comparisons between what's happening now and American terrorist movements, like the KKK, like um, slave patrols that turned into police forces in American history, especially in the South, right? How racial segregation was enforced in these ways. 
and how um, union busting by the Pinkertons and other agencies has mm. a long ass history in America. And we don't teach this stuff, right? I don't even know that much about mm. it because I only really get it from podcasts that occasionally reference it <laughs> um, because, you know, American history books that I read in history classes in high school and college never talked about um, the labor movements in America and all the right. sort of hardships that they faced, right? In fact, I think probably the first time that I ever really became aware of these things was watching Deadwood on HBO. Did you ever watch Deadwood? I did, but I don't remember any of these themes. Yeah, there was a whole subplot about the Pinkertons um, and some union busting. I don't remember the details very well, but I remember... Oh, yeah! Yeah, I remember yeah, watching it yes. and being like, oh, shit, this is crazy. Like, I, I've heard about mm. um, this kind of stuff, but... It, it, it never really became part of popular consciousness. It's not put into movies. We don't mm. celebrate you. Like, where's the Eugene Debs biopic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, so again, making these comparisons between MAGA types and international terror movements, not appropriate. Don't do it. It was funny for like three seconds, and then it became cringy. So don't do it anymore. Instead, let's have a better sort of understanding and history of where these movements stem from and the long history in America of enforcing racial segregation through basically terror movements. I think that would be much more mm. edifying for us and it would in include, include like better understanding of um, where these, the ideology of these kind of movements comes from and sort of reconciling some of the seeming contradictions that are there on the surface. Yeah, yeah. I also wonder if it doesn't come from like there's like a, there's this l this kind of like centrist um, sort of uh, ideology that is that is kind of uh, uh, guiding a lot of these these forms of like um, of critique or is it even critique like these these kind of like outbursts towards this group and I don't know like for some reason when you first started talking about it I started thinking that maybe it it spawns from a type of uh, American exceptionalism, right? Um, and and this idea that uh, um, that what you have is basically this this group of people that um, have no foundation and they have no uh, they have no rationality to them, and that the truly rational is the status quo, and that what these people are doing are actually attacking, if you will, like the the laws of civility and the the true law and order. Like, how dare they storm the Capitol? Kind of thing, right? Now, obviously, people on the left are making much more interesting critiques, right? Like um, that. I that I think we should kind of attune ourselves to. That's kind of like, oh shit! Like, look at the contradictions here. Could you imagine if uh, a group of like armed Marxists walked up and did that. Like, how do you think the fucking response would be? You know, like, there's some interesting points of conflict to kind of pursue. But I think when you basically get these people that are like, oh, it's basically, you know, Al-Qaeda or, you know, kind of like white ISIS and shit like that. Um, what, I, I, I don't know. It just seems to me to come from, again, that distaste that we've talked about before that I think I told you that Andrew Benjamin once said to me a long time ago uh, where he was basically like, you know, kind of like, uh, liberal elites really just or uh, it shows you just how much kind of like america hates um uh kind of like poor white people or hates poverty um uh, hates the working class um those types of things mm -hmm. and i was like oh yeah i guess there is there's something to that um and i think it really maybe comes from this idea of of not just american exceptionalism like we're the best but also american empire you know that this is the land of how things are are, are the greatest you know and so there's like one side of it that's that's trying to demonize these people for 
attacking the status quo, for attacking that which is the norm, for attacking that which is um, supposed to be the rightly settled way of existence. And then simultaneously, it, it's also showing that they have to uh, export their terminology, or not export, but they have to like outsource, is it outsource? They have to like borrow from, from outside their terminologies, that they can't tie it into these traditions of domestic terrorism that you're talking about. And part of the reason is because they can't look at the failures of their own country. They can't look at the failures of the United States. They have to be like, oh, it's like uh, those other people out there that are the bad ones that, that are causing the problems. And these people are like the non-Americans. Like they can't truly be American rather than recognizing that, no, actually there's something fundamentally contradictory and um, there are tensions within America itself. You don't have to try to... Uh, maintain the luster of this fantasy of America in order to critique what you see as aberrant behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very much like a we want to label this thing a cancer, so we have to say that it kind of came from the outside in some That's way. That's right. Which is very much in line with the like, you know, Russophobia stuff um, that comes from a lot of the centrists, right? There was yes. nothing that we did um, that sort of the fundamental, uh, you know, the fundamental ideology that shared by the parties, the neoliberal ideology stemming from, you know, uh, Reaganism and stuff. That's not really the problem. Whatever the problem is, it came from the outside. And so we're going to sort of liken it to this external threat that's totally outside, which itself is not even outside (laughs) that ideology, right? Um, Right. Al-Qaeda and ISIS and stuff. Um, So it's- But it's a very powerful- Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. But yeah, it's contradictory even according to his own logic, but even that- um, is it's clearly a way to just cover over the fact that now this is following from internal contradictions within um, the American system itself that's stemmed you know hundreds of years back. It's it's very old. It's not new at all. Yeah, and it's a very powerful strategy to um, galvanize support, but it's a form of I, I think psychopolitics, right? So uh, the way that you can create an an outside or, or the way that you create an outside other as a type of imminent threat is a very sort of a potent way to galvanize some sort of um, internal cohesion, right? If you say, oh, they're the threat that's coming towards us. I mean, just by metaphor, you could be like, oh, like if the aliens came to attack, you know, there would be a lot of like global coordination, right? If there's some sort of enemy that's attacking, you can call them fascist. You can call them uh, in some sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the Soviets, you know, the Marxists, whatever. It's them out there. Once you do that, once you've created that division, that separation, You've created a nice us versus them um, binary, and what that does is that really creates a potent field in which you can galvanize support for your ideological basis. And so even though this is taking place at the level of like just name-calling or supposed critique, because of the proliferation of media and because of the potency of um, like the way that libidinal, emotional, affective, and I would say psychopolitical um, forces, the way that they kind of like run so rampant today, I think it acts as a form of um, a type of psychopolitical reinforcement towards an ideological exceptionalism or an ideological strengthening around empire, which is what, what the, the center left is trying to do so hard is they're trying to reclaim or they're trying to re reground, refound that position of empire that they felt so proud of with the last regime that they look up to, you know, the sort of like Obama Clinton era type of democratic politics. And that's what they want back so much. So I feel like there's this really nefarious psychopolitical intention that's also guiding this. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know when when we're saying stuff like, okay, so 
in the last couple of years, the uh, Tulsa massacre has been um, in the public consciousness a lot because of Watchmen. And um, there was another, another TV series that dealt with it too. I forget. Um, but that became, because a lot of people were saying like, I never even heard about this. And this seems like a major event in US history, right? Or mm. uh, the Wilmington insurrection in North Carolina, which is the only successful coup in American in, in American politics, like in America, where mm. in North Carolina, um, a bunch of uh, white supremacists just killed the um, black and white integrated elected government in Wilmington and just took it over. And that was it. Like it was mm. a successful coup and it and it won <laughs> by just killing leaders. Right. Um, which is the most similar thing to what the people in the Capitol were kind of trying to do as, as much as it was buffoonish and it was bound to fail. Right. Um, when we're talking about that stuff, it's not because we're saying like, we need to just know that America is inherently racist. It can never be different. And so, you know, you need to have the sad outlook on America when you have this rosy one instead. Like that's not the point, right? The point is like you're saying, we're trying to like unearth this psychopolitical um, sort of uh, mechanism that's underneath this kind of logic, bring it to consciousness so we can critique it and replace it with something better, right? Not to have like a fundamentally cynical outlook on American politics that can never be any better. They're not trying to do that. We're trying to actually have a productive one. But the first stage of having that productive um, sort of uh, progress or orientation is to unearth the mechanism that's causing the lack of um, productive thinking in this way, which is this kind of like we're trying to find a way to bring back this neoliberal consensus from Obama-Clinton era, right? And we'll do anything and, and make any analogy, make any comparison, make any argument, uh, no matter how um, ill-suited it is uh, to the actual facts, to justify that as being the case. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay, well, should we move on to the main segment now? Yeah, let's do it. Alright, so again, we're talking about the article Emotions on Strike by Sarah Jaffe in Descent Magazine. And I know that um, Sarah Jaffe's done a lot of work with Descent um, on labor issues. I know that she hosts the Belabored podcast, which I listen to every once in a while, which focuses a mm. lot on labor issues. They did a lot of good work on uh, Prop 22 in California and talking about that uh, recently. So if, you, if you're interested in like uh, labor issues in America, I, I don't think there is a better um, source, maybe like Democracy Now! as a sort of um, not necessarily only focused on labor, but they certainly do a lot of work on that. But the Belabored podcast is really good on that. As well, and she works on a bunch of other stuff at Dissent as well, I think. She's been kind of a, a labor reporter for a long time. Um, but this article specifically is about burnout. And I think um, it comes from this book that's sort of the launching pad for the article, which is uh, um, by Anne Helen Peterson, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Have you heard of that? It's been in the public consciousness for a little bit here. Yeah, I've heard it referenced. I've not read it. Yeah, me neither. But um, it's referenced a lot. And I think it's mm -hmm. sort of the way that this sense of equating millennials and with the, the term the burnout generation or with the phenomenon of burnout, I think comes a lot from uh, that book. So there's not a whole lot in the article that's super new if you're familiar with that book or with the phenomenon of burnout, but I thought maybe I'd spend a couple minutes here summarizing the basic idea 
Um, we can stop and talk about certain points if you want to, but I don't think there's too much super surprising. What my hope was, was to sort of talk about the service level issues here brought up in the article, and then maybe riff on that a bit, and then especially get um, your take on it, specific from your own point of view, but also because I know you love Byung Chul Han's The Burnout, The Burnout Society, is that what it's called? Yeah, Burnout Society, yeah. Yeah, and see if that can help us um, gain a new perspective on some of these issues that would help uh, deepen it, expound it, or whatever. How does that sound? Sounds good to me, my friend. All right. So, first of all, the phenomenon of burnout. What is it, right? One of the Mm. points that Jaffe makes in the article, and I think it stems from uh, Peterson's book, Can't Even, is that burnout constitutively entails something that's going to make it different from like more general notions of of like negative affect like misery or struggle or suffering or whatever right what is it about burnout that makes it different well it seems like burnout requires some prior state where you had some expectation of something or maybe even the realization of something that then is lost so it's a sense of of psychological loss of something that's involved in burnout, right? And so it seems, and I think this stems from even the like the original diagnosis of burnout, which I believe um, became a popular thing in the 70s for psychiatrists. And it was first labeled on uh, doctors and nurses or generally people in the, in the helping professions, right? Who are engaged with other individuals and who are assisting them and who are supposed to provide some sort of emotional or effective labor in that process, right? As a sort of necessary mm. component of their um, of their labor for it to be successful. When they were expected to self-sacrifice, it's part of their job to do that. Um, they also have high pressure and they have high ideals of their work. So people who generally find their work to be very meaningful as well. When you have all those factors combined, when those people lose their motivation or their ability to cope or whatever because of external circumstances or w- whatever's the case, they become emotionally drained and maybe even to the point of um, mental or emotional collapse. And so that sounds pretty familiar to the kind of thing we would call burnout, right? You have to have some high ideal or expectation of what your labor is supposed to be, and you lose that high ideal. You become alienated from it in some way because of whatever set of circumstances that causes you to be emotionally drenched, not have the emotional resources um, to keep up your productivity with that ideal, right? So that sort of Mm. your physical, mental, emotional, whatever productivity can't match the ideal that you have. Mm. And that leads to this sort of alienation or burnout. Um, Here's the World Health Organization's definition of burnout. This is an article as well. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job, or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. Right, so the, the, the sense of alienation is like right there in a definition, right? To have negativity about one's job implies that, or cynicism about it, implies that you once didn't feel that way. Because you can't really be negative or cynical about things um, unless there's some implication that it's thought not to be that way, or maybe you previously yourself didn't think it to be that way, right? Otherwise, mm. you just would remain neutral. So that's the phenomenon of, of burnout, Right. What Jaffe in the article offers is a sort of modern diagnosis of how this perpetuates not just in the sort of employment sphere, which is where uh, I think even the WHO definition says it's specifically a condition that applies to employment, 
Um, right. But that it's a, it's a fully social thing now in every sphere. And Jaffe mm. mentions that social competition is the main reason for this. Here's yeah. a quote from the article. Our never-ending, unreliable work schedules turn social media, texts, and Tinder into substitutes for actual downtime, where we could expansively, perhaps radically, connect with other people. It is the time we spend with one another, after all, that has revolutionary potential. It's in those moments when people are friends and comrades rather than those with whom we compete, in each tweet and Instagram shot for middle-class status, that we find the potential to refuse to construct ourselves to fit into late capitalism's mold. Right, so I like that a lot. So this is not just a mm. phenomenon that happens in the um, at the workplace, but it's a fully socialized phenomenon because the workplace has become sort of expanded to every sphere. Right, that's like capitalism. Right, everything becomes mm. market driven, not just um, not just employment and not just the workplace, but every sphere of life, from the family to friendships to uh, anything social at all, which of course mm. is. Um, ubiquitous now that the workplace is literally at home for those of us who are even fortunate enough to work from home, right? Mm. Now, Jaffe's solution, and it's obviously a very ambiguous and broad one, is that social unions, both in the form of you know labor unions, but other kinds of unions and uh, political movements and otherwise, are the real solution. That um, a union is where you come together and you struggle together in a form of solidarity that rejects that kind of social competition. And that's the best bulwark against burnout, which I think we'd probably mm. definitely agree with. But of course, the caveat is that's, that's pretty broad and ambiguous, right? Mm. Um, so we have to talk about whether or not or what it means for a social union to be the kind of thing to provide this bulwark against burnout. But then also mm. I want to talk about what do you think Byung-Chul Han would say about this? And what would you say about this? Yeah. So I've been writing a lot of kind of chicken scratch notes as you were talking here. So, and of course, you know how my fucking scatterbrain mind works. So I'll see if I can piece this all together here. Um, first thing I, I do also want to recommend, there's so many interesting books out there that are addressing the attention economy, I think mm. uh, a lot of work on libidinal economy would be helpful for people that want to explore this phenomenon further. Um, there's a book by Jonathan Crary called 24-7 that really impacted a lot of my thinking a few years ago. It's a short little book that you can burn through in a day or a two days over a weekend. Um, oh, sorry about that. Someone's moving trash outside. Um, but yes, it's called 24-7. And the central simple thesis is that late neoliberal capitalism never stops so even when you're sleeping your online identity is plugged into um, some sort of activity of labor of giving of expenditure right so that even your psychical state when you're asleep is still actually um, tied into these online identities uh, which is one side of it, but then simultaneously, then that seeps into our very forms of subjectivity that constitute our beings, we might say, so that when we're sleeping, we're resting in order to wake up the next morning recharged so that we can go harder, right? Which is why you get all of that, like, thank God it's Monday type of shit on Instagram and go hard. And that remember that Fiverr ad? that like everyone got really pissed off about that was like you don't take lunch breaks coffee is your your source of, oh, yeah, God. Uh, of energy <laughs> all that shit and it's like and it's like burnout is your thing and everyone was like fuck you dude like 
Um, no. So, but 24-7 uh, is a really nice kind of theoretical investigation into this, and Jonathan Crary writes very clearly, so I would recommend that book as something. Um, I, I really like this uh, way that you were talking about this the alienation from the ideal and relating this to the WHO's uh, formulation of burnout. Yeah, that's the key for me and, too. Yeah, and I think that what's so important about this is that for me, and, and this goes to really the heart of what I've been thinking about lately a lot with regards to my current research. It's one of the central kind of domains, mechanisms that I'm trying to understand the socioeconomic relations. And it has to do with um, like reciprocity or some sort of return on our investment. Now, I know even that language of return on investment might already seem like financialized logic. And so we can either take it or leave it. I'm not sure that I love it, but for the sake of- Reciprocity is not though. Yeah, reciprocity is good, um, and so that's reciprocity ultimate, is really what I'm. It's like the oldest moral term in the book, man. <laughs> exactly, and that's really what I'm getting at here. And so I'll use both. But so here's what I'm thinking. So this issue of social competition um, really makes me think of the work of Michel Fair. And I've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but he talks about how what you have with late neoliberalism isn't an uh, economic system that operates according to the creation of human capital. And neither is it one that operates according to the battle between um, wages and capital in the traditional sense, right? Um, so what he says is that actually if you look at both what the left has tried to do but also what the neoliberal economists like Becker and the Chicago Boys um, tried to do to kind of stimulate uh, these theories that they thought would be beneficial towards the economy – He says that actually um, a sort of side effect is that what you get isn't so much that we are human capital, but rather we all are all portfolio managers. And what we have are these portfolios of assets, right? And this takes place at the level of the state, at the level of the corporation, and at the level of subjectivity. At the level of the state, it's about maintaining um, a country's uh, rating in the forms most likely of their bond value to court foreign direct investment or to court um, labor forces to come work there or to court um, some form of private investment to, again, maintain uh, the overall vitality, let's say, of the assetized financial economy of that particular domestic state. It operates at the level of the corporation, usually in the form of its stock value, right? Um, so FAIR draws a lot from the work of Ronald Coase, who who famously writes about firms Um and uh, But yeah, that's the idea. It's about maintaining your rating so that, again, you can court cheap credit, so that you can maintain your lines of credit, so that you can um, uh, keep getting uh, investment into corporate bonds, um, and then, of course, again, so that you can uh, maintain the level of your uh, stock, right? Because um, that will then lead to your, corp- or your company's valuations to improve, which then lead to all the positive benefits that come along with that. So, uh, and then it works at the level of subjectivity or at the level of the person in relation to what Fair calls reputational value. And this is where I think burnout comes in here. And that what, what the subject of late neoliberalism um, is primarily concerned with is maintaining our position in relation to others insofar as we can perpetually court their attention investment 
or their financial investment, right? So uh, the reason that Tinder isn't relaxing is because we're actually still laboring in the sense that we are um, using our assets to try to get investment in the forms of swipes, in the forms of communication, in the forms of dates, in the forms of accumulating phone numbers, whatever it might be. But the problem is the proportion of what is reciprocally given back in the form of a phone number or a swipe is disproportionately related to what we're expending in terms of the intensity of emotional, libidinal, and affective expression. And I think for me, that's the real key to this mechanism. It's that disproportion between the um, expenditure and that which is reciprocated back, that which is given back in terms of the return on our time investment, the return on our emotional investment, or um, the reciprocal relation uh, based on what we're kind of giving in our participatory outward um, activities, right? And now the reason I think this fits into this notion of alienation and ideal is I think that there's a psychoanalytic or let's say just a a psychical aspect to this as well, which is the fantasy, right? The symbolic, the fantasy, the imaginary, all of those things are things that are outside of us that are then sort of demanding and imposing um, uh, a certain rate of activity and certain types of activity in relation to them to service those ideals so that those ideals can continue to be maintained, so that those ideals can continue to motivate us forward. But as Zizek points out, I think quite poignantly, the law of the superego, what he calls the superego injunction, is the more innocent you are, the guiltier you are. That is, the more you serve the ideal, the more faithful you are to those ideals that you've projected for yourself, the more that's required of you to service those ideals. And what that does is that creates a burden. So that's where I think there's actually, ironically perhaps, a theological logic in this as well that creates a type of other uh, that becomes like a theological figure that creates a burden as a taskmaster. And this is, you know, famously Paul talks about this, right? That the law was a taskmaster. Why? Because it's a fucking, it whips you and it beats you. You're not doing enough. You're not being good enough. You're not being an obedient enough subject. Even if what you're not being obedient to are the ideals that you set for yourself, right? The, I want to have a good job. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to self-actualize. I want personal development. I want to be happy. I want to have a good community. If those things are tied into this larger structural system, then it contaminates all of those potentially putatively positive intentions according to this larger logic. And then I think for me, what that does is it creates a sort of disproportionate, almost one-way flow of outward expenditure, but without the appropriate proportional reciprocity. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I also think reciprocity is a super important moral notion. And you know, um, it's obviously ambiguous, right? So you have to flesh it out. One thing I think people misunderstand about reciprocity, and this is a, a really key term for Rawls, and I think people misunderstand it a lot. Um, in Rawls is there's an assumption, especially for people on the left, that reciprocity basically means like the, the negative gloss on return on investment like you were hinting at earlier, right? Which is if I put something in, I better get something else that's worthwhile out of it, right? And that's this kind of right. egoistic um, subject only position that's part of like, you know, it's the worst part of the the liberal subject, the classical liberal subject. Um, yeah the egoistic subject who just 
posits uh, needs or desires or whatever, right? And then seeks to fulfill them out in the marketplace. That's right. And that's obviously super problematic, right? But that's not what I think reciprocity is getting at, really. Um, and that's, I guess that's one gloss on reciprocity you could have, right? But it's certainly not the one that I think either of us would want to um, offer. But what reciprocity, sort of a better gloss on it, might be something like whatever we're going to talk about when it comes to um, all of these factors, when it comes to sort of affect and labor and um, and whatever, there's there has to be some notion of the of the community aspect of it, right? And some notion of I mean I don't I don't like the term fairness very well because it's also ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It can have that kind of more classically liberal sense to it, but a sense of like um, both having a a concern and respect for others as well as oneself. And I think a yeah. lot of moral theories, especially, err when they want to not have both of those things, right? Mm. Um, and that's a bit, a bit a bigger subject, but I don't want to get too far down that. Now, the the sort of um, important ramification of that is that when we're talking about things like how social media especially ha- sort of instantiates or cultivates this phenomenon where reciprocity doesn't exist, in large part, mm. I think it's because the demand is predetermined, right? Social media is cast in such a way, and Instagram's probably the worst at this, right? Of mm. there's a specific kind of thing you have to do to functionally succeed at Instagramming, right? And you know yeah. what it is, and you know when you've achieved it because the likes tell you it's the case. Mm. Um, and we've talked, I think even to the last episode, we talked about how social media is constraining in this way, but mm-hmm. that it didn't used to be and doesn't have to be, right? Mm. We could, and this is sort of a, I'm taking a seminar on Hegel now, you know this, um, and for the audience, <laughs> where one of the things I'm really interested in is this idea of social experimentation that's found in Hegel, and that freedom for Hegel is not this sort of negative um, liberal sense where it's uh, the freedom from constraints, right? But it's actually more of the ability or capacity to self-determine that's a Kantian mm. notion, right? But Hegel adds the community aspect, which is to, freedom is the capacity to self-determine um, at home with one at home being oneself with another is the phrase that Hegel uses. Which there's different glosses on that, right? Because Hegel's inscrutable. Um, but one way of thinking about it is something like you're truly free when you can self-actualize or self-determine. Um, experimentally with other people such that yes. they are constitutive in your self-determination and you are constitutive in their self-determination. Um, yes. And that idea I think is so perfect and is exactly the kind of idea I would want to philosophically advocate as being <laughs> uh, a notion of true freedom. And social media used to be that way in the beginning, I think. It used to be that you could just sort of experiments and say funny jokes and people would riff on them. Um, you could post a link and then just have an actually beneficial conversation about it with friends. Uh, and there was, of course, there's going to be some posturing, some performance, like that's just human, like being human, right? But right, it, exactly. in terms of, of a spectrum, it was much more on the side of um, experimenting in this way, both in like a serious way and also in just a funny, comical, um, enjoyable way. And it's largely gone away from that, right? As it becomes more ubiquitous and dominant in society and, and really gets incorporated into a neoliberal logic, right? As it becomes more marketized. 
um, mm-hmm. it becomes this absolute demand to do a specific thing and to get the reward for doing it. And mm-hmm. that kind of um, singular constrained market logic, um, it stifles, it makes us suffer because it's not, it, and, it, and most importantly, it alienates us away from that sense of true freedom, uh, which is self-determination with others, constituted and, and, in both directions. And the a reward that you're getting can oftentimes be an imagined reward. It doesn't always manifest in the form of likes. Like that's the that's the material like that's that's when the dopamine hits really come in, right? Like Byung-Chul Han talks about like that likes and shares and things like that are today's contemporary amen, right? So um <laughs> the, there's a sort of like religious like amen or hallelujah when someone likes your your thing. But even if you don't get that, um, say you have a, a sort of more intimate uh, uh, it, you're not like doing the full I'm trying to build a business on Instagram or I'm trying to build a business on social media um, type of thing. There's still an imagined reward um, that, that I think has a couple of different effects uh, or, or there are a couple of different issues surrounding it. Um, one, it's that those other accounts that are fully bought into that type of marketized logic explicitly still inform the restraints that dictate the methods of communication and the meanings that are valued on those particular platforms. That's why people take take photos uh, at the same places or they take photos of the same types of phenomenon or they share uh, an inspirational quote over the same type of photograph in the background or they stand with a sim- similar kind of pose. Now again, part of this is human, right? We are social animals and we do mimic each other, right? I was thinking a little bit about mimesis and mimetic rivalry when we were first starting this as well as as another thing to kind of consider in this whole formulation here um but uh but but it's the rate and um the expectation um and the intensity by which we service those pressures by which we service those demands that are imposed upon us what i would call in my own work that i develop in my book are the sort of like serial demands that induce in us via some sort of like uh, outward compulsion um it's those issues and then it becomes a compulsion and that's my concern is that in becoming a compulsion um the reward doesn't have to be something that is given in the form of likes it can simply be something that's imagined in our own servicing of the ideal hmm. right and that's my that's the issue do you think it'd be correct to say that it's the form of the demanding compulsion not the content yes and, and yes. by that yes. i yeah and by that i mean like so it seems like it's not when we're talking when i'm talking about like the the marketized logic of the social media demand i don't mean that it's because someone's like trying to make money off of it. That's part of it. Right. That's one foot. That's one like instantiation of the phenomenon, but that's not the fundamental part of it. Right. That's what I mean by the right. form of the content. And so the real issue seems to be that social media and Instagram specifically has evolved in such a way that no matter what you do, you are incorporated into this logic of, of yes. as, as we were talking about earlier, managing your social reputation. Right, which is demanded that you do certain things and say certain things to achieve that status of having a positive social reputation, or you can ruin it by not doing those things. Right, um, that, and mm. talking about both monetarily and non-monetarily in this sense, and because that logic exists, one you can't escape it. Right? You can't just decide to opt out. That's just the way that the system works and functions. Right, 
But then also the problem with the main problem is it, is it alienates you from that sense of co-determination of yourself with others because you're unable to do that when you're simply fulfilling a demand. It's like a divine command theory like transported yes. into social reputations where it's just about fulfilling a set of demands to achieve some possibly even as you're saying imagined reward, right? It's not even a problem about whether or not the reward is imagined or not. The whole logic itself um, alienates you from being fundamentally a free human being. Yes. And then here's where I think there's even a more um, – here's a more insidious and I think a more material and concrete um, aspect to this as well. This is all tied into platforms that are themselves massive corporations that are benefiting to the tune of billions and billions of dollars based on our activity that we're expending onto their platforms, right? So um, I think that they're in, – in my current kind of plan, what I'm working on is a sort of like tripartite description of how the asset economy functions, right? And I think one of the ways that we can think of this is this threefold of inscription, incorporation, and quantification. Inscription is the activity of kind of like transforming or um, – giving new meanings to, because it could be reinscription as well, or giving meaning to these activities. So travel, for example, isn't a bad thing, but the meaning by which we travel is already inscribed and being reinscribed because of these platforms that are psychically inducing in us how it is that we even go to the travel experience in the first instance, right? And mm -hmm. that meaning is dictated according to those values that are established by the platform logic, according to this larger sort of late neoliberal logic. Then what you have is incorporation. Then the activity is actually incorporated or enclosed, we could even say. So it could be incorporation or enclosure. And I like the word enclosure because that ties us into the kind of whole history of how capitalism operates via the enclosure acts, you know, way back in, uh, in, in England in the 16th century, right? Um, so what you have then is this activity of incorporation or enclosure that becomes privatized that becomes particularized on this platform, right? And um, so then what ends up happening is this platform is using your data. It is using the newly inscribed travel holiday that you had um, onto their platform so that they now can benefit from that more so than you can, right? And then this is where quantification comes in. And then, of course, their asset valuation increases based on the amount of activity, the amount of time that's spent on their platforms, the amount of users that they have. And they use that, of course, to sell to meta-platform investors like SoftBank and shit like that um, or whatever else they're doing to kind of like increase uh, their their asset price valuation, right? Which then is all concerned, as we talked about previously with the corporation, with maintaining their, quote, rating. So what we're also doing is we're also laborers servicing, ultimately, the valuation of this platform according to this logic of quantification, then enclosure, then inscription, which means there's sort of like this backward effect almost where we think that we are operating from our choice to do the activity, but rather it's a compulsion that comes outwardly that is dictated by the larger structural system that says, okay, um, in order for us to increase our valuation, we need to have users. How can we have users? We need, we need to be able to incorporate some sort of assets, some sort of like micro assets 
assets that we can then sell to uh, potential investors. And then in order to do that, we need to create meanings. We need to sell happiness. We need to sell joy. We need to sell adventure. That's why a fucking Matthew McConaughey ad, when he's selling a fucking Cadillac or whatever it is, isn't about it gets X miles to the gallon and it goes this fast. <laughs> and What's it about? It's about his sexy Sex. southern accent. Yeah. <laughs> And freedom and manliness and and truth and beauty and those are the things and ultimately happiness, right? So it's this backwards approach and then it hits us and then it's like, oh, yes. And then it like pulls us upward towards it like a form of apotheosis where we think we're realizing our desires, but really we've been induced into desire. And then that I think also relates to kind of this this process of alienation that you were talking about because we're being alienated from the ideal, but the ideal isn't created by us. It's been given to us and it's been given to us by a particular regime an economic regime that is making billions and billions and billions of dollars based on our perpetual libidinal investment into it, but without the reciprocity, without the the contribution and participation that would come from a more kind of um, adequate communal experience. Yeah, and I think the important point of, of of making this point about alienation, right, which presupposes some positive vision that's been lost or never realized or was maybe just expected, right? Is that the sense in which platforms have this control over the process of inscription and activity and corporation and stuff like that, right? Is not in and of itself, just at the formal level, necessarily bad. Like, I don't think that the hierarchy that exists between parents and children is of its nature constitutively bad. Right, it mm. often is right, and the fact that it's a hierarchy lends itself to bad things, which don't exist in, you know, non-hierarchies. Right, uh, it creates opportunities for bad shit. Right, um, but it's not in and of itself bad. It's the fact that that control is done with a function for the purpose of um, things which necessarily alienate us from that positive vision that makes it bad. So you really that the the positive vision of of liberty and freedom thing. And the alienation that follows from not realizing it, I think a super important point to make in the theoretical construction of all this, because simply defining um, and explaining how the control process works is super important, right? It's absolutely fundamental, but by itself doesn't make the whole normative point about why it's bad, what to do about it, and what we would want instead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so this is... This is the difficult thing to communicate here, right? So we can also say that um, that if these things aren't bad, kind of constitutively, is there a way in this inundated world, um, is there a way to reclaim authenticity? Is there a way to... to, to, to to hold on to something that isn't going to just simply perpetually um, and disproportionately lead to this tendency towards alienation, which then we think, or at least I definitely think, produces uh, the type of burnout. Is there a way to do it individually, or are we fucked until like uh, we have better social activities in the form of unions or co-ops or something like that? Like, is burnout going to be there? Or is there a way that we can develop things in our individual practice, you know, um, that 
that get outside of it. So like I'm thinking here, like, you know, like people talk so much about, um, I was talking about this with my girl last night, like, because uh, I was telling her about what we were talking about on the episode. And um, she's, uh, she's a researcher who's like um, really implementing mindfulness strategies into like pain mitigation. And also she's a big yoga practitioner and um, and all these are things that I've engaged in for years in my own life. And you, obviously, we've talked about this uh, on the podcast before. You um, have, have found the joys of meditation. Um, and so uh, there, there are some things that we can engage in that, um, that give us connection. Um, or, or it could just be going to a party and hanging with friends. Um, it could be going to a concert, right? Um, are these things all always already contaminated? And I would say no. Um, I think that there is a certain pessimism, I would say even a cynicism amongst certain lefty types that think that all of this shit is just bullshit capitalist stuff, right? Um, and I think that things are, are, are never really that kind of cut and dry and that there are like domains of intensity, right, that are like overlapping and interpenetrating and things are much more four-dimensional or nth dimensional, right? Um, rather than it's either this or that, right? So we need to think about it from that kind of kind of angle. Um, but so what what do we do in our personal practice? What do we do in our social practice um, to try to move away from this tendency towards alienation? Is it just simply about setting the right intention, right? Like, like if I do my yogic practice or if I go to the concert, um, that if I, if I just get my mind right, then I'm not feeding into the system. Well, no, that doesn't always work because the system doesn't give a fuck about you and it's still, when you're on Instagram, regardless of what your intentions are, it's still extracting value from you disproportionately than the value that, uh, that you're getting back, right? So like how do, we, how do we engage? Is there something we can say constructively here? Yeah, I think, I think you're right that there's like a both sides, a yes and no to this, right? It's kind of like that, What's that classic Freudian phrase um, that psychotherapy is meant to take you from hysterical misery to normal unhappiness? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. Which is a bit tongue in cheek. Right. But the, yeah, yeah, the, tru- yeah. <laughs> the truth at the heart of that is like these, these <laughs> subjective technologies, which we can use, really do help. Right. But if the social conditions are fucked, you're only going to yes. go so far with them. And that's a, I think I think it's a really important point to come to grips with because Look, burnout is only going to increase because every sphere of life is becoming more and more like the market in this way. It's, it's adopting this social form um, that we're analyzing and critiquing here, right? This negative, mm. alienating social form. More and more of life is becoming like this. It didn't even used to be like this in the 70s and in the 60s in America, right? There were places where you could escape from the market and you can't now. To opt out is to opt out of the social form altogether in some respects, or at least to adopt out of more and more um, social interactions, right? And so as long as those social forms don't change, there's some baseline of fucked that we, I think we just kind of are. And you should expect that burnout's going to become a more ubiquitous phenomenon for that reason, right? And those subjective mm. technologies are great, and I think we should use them to go from hysterical misery to normal unhappiness, uh, and maybe mm. even better than that. Maybe there are some moments of happiness too, right? But mm-hmm. I don't think until we reclaim social spaces for this kind of co-determination and reciprocity, right, non-alienating kind, it's not until we do that that I think you can have 
uh, the expectation that phenomenon like burnout um, would decrease. I think those are just mm. going to be necessary consequences of this second disease social form becoming more ubiquitous. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, are they too pessimistic, you think? Uh, according to my ideal that I want to service, yes, it is definitely <laughs> too pessimistic. Um, yeah, why, why normal unhappiness and why not ecstatic fucking joy, you know? Um, but you know, that's just me. Come on. You know me, brother. Um, yeah. But I, that, that comes from those social forms that still have vestiges of actual freedom, right? Like you're, that's right. I'm sure that you're experienced doing the play. Um, preparing yeah. for it how is that because you're doing all of this work not for money and not even really for like social prestige so much in the, like the you know social media kind but because you love it and it brings yeah. you great satisfaction and meaning to work and put together and labor for this project with other people who also care about it and co-determine each other in this experimental way right and it's it's partially plagued by these negative alienating social forms but it's yeah because there is still things. there is still a money there is still a money concern here. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right I, I this hit me the other day like overwhelmingly that um that like you know how so many people and you know i think a lot of this is tied into and we can get even like a little bit more abstract here but i think there's something about the the, the tendency towards instrumental and technological rationality that um, fits into all of this issue of burnout and alienation as well, right? Which is another one of the big things that Kant is trying to fight against, right? And that Hegel is Mm -hmm. warring against. And so I think that fits into this as well. But I was thinking this the other day. I was like, like, we, we spend so much time doing stuff in order to get somewhere, you know, we do, uh, we go to the gym in order to look good so that we can make ourselves feel better so that we can live up to the ideal of what beauty is, so that we can um, get the hottie at the bar, so that we can get more swipes, so that we can whatever. Um, Yes, of course, it's also so that we can feel good in ourselves, but you're never doing that apart from the fantasy. You're never doing that apart from the symbolic. We are always immersed in that. So you can't ever escape from that entirely. So there's always some sense in which we're servicing some sort of instrumental set of relations. Um, I was thinking the other day, I was like, so many so many times we're doing stuff in our lives in order to, to, to get somewhere else. And I kind of paused for a minute and I said, with this play, of course part of me is like, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm introducing myself to the Sydney theater scene. This is my first thing in Sydney that I've done in theater. So yeah, there, there are things that I'm trying to accomplish. But I'm also just doing the thing, right? Like I'm doing the thing that I love. I'm not trying to do the thing in order to get to the thing, right? Like, I'm not going to theater school in order so that I can get cast in the play. Like, I'm doing the thing. Like, this is the thing. <laughs> and does that make any sense? Like, Oh, like, my God, a, a, an intrinsically meaningful activity. What is this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's fuck. It's like, what? Like, it, it, it freaks me out. Some, it's weird, you know? Um... And so there are those moments where it's like you're doing the thing. And then, of course, that moment is so fleeting. And this is the fucking John Hamm line or Don Draper line from Mad Men where the guy uh, is talking about like how they're happy with, with 70% or whatever it is. He's like, bullshit, you're not happy. He's like, you want to know what happiness is? Happiness is the moment before you need more happiness. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, fuck. 
right? And and that's what the entire advertising Someone's industry. Someone's an empiricist. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so there is that constant tension where it's like, yeah, you when you find the thing, you're 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 into the thing, and you're doing the thing, and you love the thing, but there's something about it not being enough still and i don't know if this is just reducible to some sort of bullshit like it's the human condition or if there's something that's much more material that we can kind of like really get at but yeah yeah that that's kind of that's that, that's that's it i don't know no dude you're you're speaking my language right here so i think this all comes down to or at least in part comes down to what do we mean when we say freedom is at least in part self-determination like self-determination is ambiguous between two different basically theories of rationality. One is the deflationary instrumental account of rationality, which you talked about, right? Which is, right. we define self-determination as satisfying pre-existing desires, something like that, right? So you have a set right. of desires and to self-determine and to be free is to fulfill those desires. That's, That's a right. super deflationary and instrumentalist account of rationality, where rationality is simply achieving the most efficient end means towards the end of satisfying those desires, right? Exactly. And that's, bad <laughs> right it's bad <laughs> and it's wrong because ultimately nothing becomes meaningful because even that happiness that's achieved when your ends are fulfilled and satisfied is just the moment before you need more happiness right that's exactly. the john ham approach um whereas a more robust uh inflated account of rationality would also involve the recognition of intrinsically meaningful and valuable activities right which mm the ends themselves that are recognized as objectively meaningful, right? Not just because I decided that they were, not just because I happened to like them or happened to find pleasure in them today, but because I actually mm. recognized them as being meaningful, full stop, right? Mm. And for the instrumentalist account of rationality, that sounds like psychosis. Like you're just crazy, y yes. right? Yes. That doesn't even, that's not, that's not even a proper input, right? It's just like, we need an error theory of that. It just makes no sense. Um, but that's, I think, the only way you can really live, live like a satisfactory, meaningful life is to have things in your life that you find intrinsically meaningful and to pursue them. And I think the super important, like Hegelian point that I was talking about earlier is we don't come prepackaged with what those things are. We have to find out what they are through social experimentation with others. And mm. even then, we don't really come to a full god's eye view of what those things are we come to partial glimpsed views with others and that even itself evolves and changes over time as we become different people that's right through social growth and evolution so and it's a, you know it's a long process and that's all complicated and shit right but the point just being um we got to ditch that instrumentalist account of rationality and instead we got to have room for talking about these intrinsically meaningful activities and think about the fact that when we work to achieve the sort of efficient means or whatever to them, we actually get to enjoy the meaningful activity itself rather than viewing it as simply efficient means towards happiness, which is like the yeah. most alienating possible conception of human life that I can think of. Well, and that the is alienating. There might be some like cultic religions that have more <laughs> alienating forms of life than that. Like <laughs> I, I'm growing and doing everything I can to feed the great beast. That might be more alienating. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, it's pretty alienating. Although, <laughs> if we're feeding the great beast of capital, I mean, that is kind of a very Marxist way of, of speaking uh, about the vampiric nature of capital, right? That we are. But just at least you get living. some pleasure in between. Maybe the great yeah, beast is go. like, you got to stab yourself every day. 
Yeah, well, that's hell, right? That's literally, I guess, hell, right? Um, well, yeah, here's the interesting thing, too, though, is that capitalist rationality, the rationality that we're raised with, the rationality that's reinforced by our spending habits and by our social habits and all these things, is that instrumental rationality. And I think mm-hmm. that's what leads to alienation and what leads to burnout. However, here's the weird thing, and here's the point of tension. And I love what you just said before, um, that experimentation in those social groupings, it's not something that's like you just find it and you're like, I found it perfectly. I'm just going to perfectly live now. No, it's it, it, it ebbs and it flows, and sometimes you find it sometimes you don't. Sometimes you stumble into it via instrumental rationality, right? Here's a perfect example. Here's an example. Um, when I go out to surf, I can't get myself out of my mind of the 30 years or whatever of growing up in Southern California where it was like the fantasy of being a surfer, which is cool and something you admire and something that's like sexy for a man to be a surfer guy, right? I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't get watching Kelly Slater's surf videos and Rob Machado's surf videos out of my head when I was a teenager. I can't get going into Rip Curl or hanging out with girls going into Roxy. I can't get those fantasies, those those things out of my head um, ever. Those things have constituted part of my history and part of my, my the way that I engage in symbolic forms of, of thought, right? But when I get out in the water, even if all of those things are there in some sense, even if I'm serving, let's say, those instrumental forms of rationality on this $500 board that I bought. It's a secondhand board. You can't buy a fucking legit stick for 500 bucks. Um, <laughs> but anyway, my, my, my secondhand badass 511 Rusty that I'm going to go out and fucking like enjoy the waves on. Something happens, though, sometimes when you hit that water or when you catch a wave when you're in the quote flow state i know people hate that term or if you saw the movie soul the zone right when you're in the zone there is something transcendent there is something that you kind of discover you discover the intrinsic meaning the intrinsic joy the intrinsic value that that maybe changes all of those other fantasies I had of watching the Kelly Slater videos or of of trying to, like, want to be a surfer guy when I was younger. Like, those things kind of, they fall away a little bit. Not that they completely dissolve, but there's a kind of rupture. Maybe even an event, we might say, that you kind of discover and you fall into. And then what happens when you come back into the symbolic, when you get out of the zone or the flow state or whatever the fuck it is, that then re- it kind of rejiggers, if you will, all of those fantasies that you previously had before, and it kind of changes them a little bit, right? And so now the next time that you're going to go out and do the thing, there's still those forms of instrumental rationality that are kind of uh, inducing you or that are compelling you towards the activity. But at the same time, there's also there's also the imprint of that fucking zone effect, you know? And, and, and maybe then you're chasing that and then that becomes the new fantasy. But then it happens again and it fucking blows your mind and there's a rupture. And, and I don't know, I feel like there's this interesting dialectical relationship that's, that's taking place as well. And sometimes via the instrumental form of rationality, you can fall into, you can discover... Um, those moments of pure intrinsic meaning and joy. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, when you were mentioning the the surfer thing, I was thinking, what would my example uh, would be? I, I can only come up with when I if I go to the the playground and to shoot hoops, right? Um, yeah. If I'm by myself, sometimes if somebody's walking by, and maybe you have this phenomenon too, <laughs> you want to do a cool move and yeah. hit like 
Yeah. You'll do a, you do a spin move, right? Move to cross over to your offhand, and then do a step back and hit a fadeaway jumper from like 18. That looks cool. That's right. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you don't even look at the person, but you imagine <laughs> that that person saw you because you, you act like you've been there before, bro. Yeah, and then sometimes you daydream like this person's going to be part of an adult league, and they're going to come over and be like, "Dude, can you join our team?" <laughs> like, I'm be like, "No, I'm too busy, but thanks, yes. man." <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I've had that fantasy too many times, and I'm very embarrassed oh, to dude, mention it. Same, <laughs> same, 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 same. Oh shit! But yeah, but seriously, yeah. Um, I think you're right. And the lesson to take from that is it's not an either or thing, right? It's not like everything is plagued by like capitalist instrumental rationality. And so we're all fucked. Or um, if we just switch the way we think, then we'll be good because you can't do that. Right. It's always going to be a spectrum. It's always going to be a mishmash of both. And it seems like the real practical lesson is just look for those areas in your life where it's possible to find the vestiges of that sense of meaningful activity where it's possible to engage in social relations where reciprocity is favored um, and you know put on a pedestal is the goal of that social relation where you're allowed to co-determine without this kind of um, negative social logic uh, impugning on you. And there's going to be times where that's even plagued too by this stuff because it's fucking ubiquitous and it's everywhere. But mm. if you can find those little areas like surfing is for you or the theater or whatever else. Or the theater, yeah, yeah. If you can find those things and just like dedicate yourself to them um it, it seems like the mm. only prescription against a burnout is to find other areas in life where you can find that sense of meaningful activity until it comes back and that's mm. it's so fucking hard of a prescription right because the whole point is burnout makes you lose the motivation um to do that stuff and so it's there's like there's a catch-22 in the middle of that there right um yeah. that then means like then we have an obligation to each other to help one another, right? It's not just about my own self-determination. If my self-determination itself is constitutive on other people being involved in it and me and theirs, then we have to like build each other up and provide those opportunities for one another too. Yeah. And I I believe that we can find that in, I, I want to say in every aspect of our life. I really do think that. Like, you know me, I'm such a fucking hopeful uh, dweeb about shit like this sometimes but I think we can find it in our romantic relationships I think we can find it in our tennis games what I think we can find it in our relationships with our parents I think we can find it in 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 I think we can build societies in this way I really do um and so I think for me there's even something joyful in trying to seek out those moments like to become attuned to when you find that intrinsic spark so to speak and then and then when you find it don't let it go you know like keep keep fucking chasing it you know um keep enjoying it i maybe just chasing it does that make it even seem like i'm already buying into this fucking hustle culture i don't i don't want to it's just i i even lack the vocabulary sometimes to kind of describe what i'm talking about but when you sense it when you taste it you know like a fucking coyote on a trail just just keep keep letting the scent guide you you know and um yeah, and I think for me, that's maybe a way out of it. For someone like Byung-Chul Han, Byung-Chul Han talks about like like idiotism and kind of like escaping from society. He's a bit of a romantic, you know, he's been very influenced by Heidegger in that sense. Um, 
and some of that I buy into. Like, you know, I love, I love that idea of, you know, my cabin in the, in the woods kind of thing, right? But there's also an escapism to that. And there's also a sort of fantasy that I'm serving in that. And, and it's maybe not the best, the best fantasy all the time. And so it's, it's, again, it's one of those tensions that I'm, I'm always trying to navigate through. But yeah. And then I think here's the last thing I want to say. Don't be so fucking hard on ourselves. You know, like one of the things that burnout society, one of the characteristics of burnout society is we are so fucking hard on ourselves, right? We're not doing enough. I hear this so often when you get around a group of people that are trying to really kind of engage in um, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like uh, self-betterment or, um, uh, or, or self-actualization or personal development or whatever. They oftentimes, when someone is like, oh, oh, you know, do you meditate? You can see that the other person is like, oh, no, I should, I should. And you can see their body language. You can see their eyes. There's a guilt as though, like, they feel like they're being judged. And maybe they're not. Maybe the person was just like, oh, you know, like, I've really gotten into meditation lately. Do you meditate? And then the person, you can feel it's like a self-induced guilt that they're imposing on themselves. And it's just such a fucking protestant or catholic mortification of sin self-flagellating christian type of response that i immediately i just want to go over and hug them and be like no it's okay you know like it's 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 that instrumentalist rationality again right oh yeah i really should take the most efficient means towards being happy but i don't and i suck for that reason that's right. And then all that does is then you feel shit about feeling shit because you're not doing the thing <laughs> to take, you know? And it's this self-perpetuating cycle. And so, guys, just fucking don't be so hard on yourselves. Death of God, man. That's really what we're coming to in this thing. This is just another <laughs> Death of God episode. That's that was, all a, that was a big jump. <laughs> no, this is it, man. It's the same shit, man. That's what we're talking about. Kill the fucking big other, man. Fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, yeah, just just – it's okay. We're in process and we got to we got to we got to be more patient with ourselves and with others, you know? And I think that will also um go a long way towards overcoming these instrumental forms because impatience is oftentimes dictated by the demands that are imposed from servicing that instrumental relation, right? Um and so if we can overcome that, if we can resist that, then we can be more patient with each other. We can build stronger communities. And I think I think that's a way that we can start to kind of contest that tendency towards alienation and potentially burnout. Yeah, th- that's the, just to end this off here, that's the experimentation part of the freedom as social experimentation, right? Which is experimentation yeah. necessarily allows very broad and porous borders on what your plans are and what you do. So you don't just take up the most efficient means towards your singular end, right? That everyone has to accept as their single dominant end, happiness, right? Whatever, becoming the ideal, um, you know, social individual. But instead of being like, you know what? If you're talking about social experimentation, then boredom is awesome. Because that means you have an opportunity to just kind of free play. Hanging out Mm. becomes like one of the ultimate ideals because you could end up doing anything. Right. And so having all those open porous borders on your activity and what you do, which is now kind of demonized as being lazy or unprincipled or directionless or whatever. Right. Those become virtues because um, Mm. you're you're just sort of experimenting. You're just going where things take you, not because it's 
intrinsically good to not have a plan or anything right? or not have anything determined but instead because no you're, this is actually your determined angle is to have some free play see where things go right just experiment and you know because we're finite and don't know a lot about ourselves and are constantly creating ourselves as we engage in social interactions we'll end up sort of becoming new people every time we do these kinds of things and that's that's really what freedom looks like man you just got me a little teary-eyed there troy yeah, I like to do that's that beautiful. too. That's <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, let's wrap this up before I become a fucking sobbing mess and start to get really emotional. <laughs> yeah, you're a little bit on edge because of all the work you're doing for your play, so you can break that in any moment. I'm so fucking vulnerable right now, dude. <laughs> uh, let's go into the sticky leaves, yeah? Leave people with some sort of joyous thing that they can take with them in the week. Yeah, yeah. So the Sticky Leaves is a segment of the episode where one of us talks about whatever is providing us meaning, intrinsic meaning, in a potentially <laughs> meaningless universe. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? You're going to hate me so much, brother. <laughs> okay. You're going to hate me so much. Tom okay. Brady is in his 10th Super Bowl. Ten. Oh, I don't hate you. I just don't give a shit. <laughs> Super Bowl. 10 bro 10 he's been a pro for 21 years he's been in the super bowl essentially half of his career that is unheard of that is that is that is insane right and not only that who's similar who magic johnson oh really how many finals did he go to uh well he won five finals he lost to the celtics once the pistons once and the bulls once so eight and he of only played for like 14 seasons or something 12 years if you don't count wow. the half the half season he returned in 96 yeah wow that's insane like that level of of success is just not common right in team sports it's it's really amazing and not only that but this is like some LeBron shit, but imagine the first season that LeBron goes to the Lakers, he takes his team to the finals. Brady left the Patriots, left the, quote, greatest coach of all time, left the system that he'd been in for 20 years, right? Goes to a completely different organization, a completely different conference, and he goes and he takes his team to the Super Bowl in the first season. Like, this man, my, my, my man crush is just growing deeper on Tom Brady. <laughs> Wait, is, isn't he a Trump guy, though? Yeah, fuck that shit. Fuck his politics. <laughs> Trump! Trump! Get your shit together. Fuck. <laughs> makes me so mad. How can that even be? God, why are rich white people so dumb sometimes? <laughs> Do you need that question to be answered? That's rhetorical, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So, okay, his <laughs> politics are horrendous. Fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry for but mentioning it. I honestly couldn't no, remember if it was true or not. It's true. I mean, I don't know. Here's the weird thing. Like, I don't know. Like, he, yeah, fuck it. I don't know. Like, he was friends no, wait, with Trump. I got, you, the, I got you off track. Yeah. Don't talk about that. Talk about what you want to talk about. What's your sticky leaves about this? Oh, it's just, like, it's just amazing. Like, I, we've talked about this, I think, before, but I think... Like watching excellence in anything, 
Like if the person is an excellent researcher, if the person is an excellent artist, if they're an excellent chef, if they're an excellent ballet dancer, fire breather, whatever the fuck their thing is, for me, excellence is just so amazing, right? And excellence doesn't mean perfection necessarily. It can, right? Um, But I love being in front of excellence. And I think this is one of the reasons why, like I've been so bored with fucking Netflix. Like I am not watching any fucking Netflix movies. Like the only movies I'm watching are ones that I have to for Wisecrack or ones that get like really, like really well reviewed by people that I trust. Like I haven't seen another round yet, but I'm going to because I've been told by a few people that I really trust that this is good and it's my favorite one of my favorite directors in the world and I love when he works with Mads and I love Mads Mikkelsen so like like that but like I I I, I'm just so fucking bored with stuff and I feel like (laughs) it's not that there isn't craft that goes into all of these things like I know I've worked in this industry off and on since I was a fucking kid so I know that there are talented art directors and production designers and producers and and the people on the projects not always, but very often are trying their damnedest to do the best that they can with this job that they've been given. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times it is just a job, right? And and they're just doing a job. And even with professional sports, you hear this a lot from veterans, right? Where they're just doing a job to make their paycheck so they can take care of their family, but maybe they've lost the love for it sort of thing. Tom Brady is one of those guys that still is obsessed <laughs> You know, he still has the love. Now, maybe it's not always healthy. Like maybe there's a point of obsession when you're 43 years old and you can't let go. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should just kind of move on. But his body's healthy. He's okay. Like, like so. It, but there's still a fucking love and a passion. And I think that there's something beautiful about watching that. And it is also just crazy that new team engaging in this activity, bringing the team to the Super Bowl. And they're going to be playing, and it's really going to be a fun Super Bowl because um, it's Tom Brady and the Buccaneers versus Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. And for those of you that are football fans that are listening, Troy, I don't know if you pay much attention. Patrick Mahomes is a fucking freak of a player, man. Dude's in like his third or fourth season now, I think fourth season now, and he's already being talked about as being one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Like, like that's mm. insane that, that you can achieve those heights this early in your career. He's already won one Super Bowl. He should have been in two Super Bowls, but he actually lost to the Patriots uh, when Brady was leading them a couple seasons ago. Um, this is the uh, him now back-to-back in the Super Bowl. Um, and he's just so—that team is also just really joyous, like— their tight end Travis Kelsey's kind of a funny dude. Their wide receiver Tyreek Hill is like this five foot nine speed demon, and I've watched some of his workout videos. The dude's just—he's just a fuck. Like uh, his body is like one big muscle, and no wonder he's so freaking fast and strong. And he's, he's a great route runner. And their coach is is great, and you, you can't like not enjoy them. They've got just got like a great culture around them. So the Super Bowl is going to be really fun to see the greatest quarterback of all time, and then the new like best quarterback. You know, one of the being talked about as being one of the potential greatest of all time. And one's like 23 and one's 43 years, or one's like 25, 26, and one's 43. And it's kind of like, is this the passing of the baton moment? Like this is kind of amazing, this head-to-head thing. And it's kind of just, it's going to be a really intriguing story going into the Super Bowl. I don't know if the game will be good. I think the Kansas City Chiefs are a better team, but um, the Buccaneers, they weren't favored to get to the Super Bowl once the playoffs started, but they just believe because they've got this guy that's 
a fucking perennial winner, and so they think that they can, and they do have a lot of talent on on their team as well. Um, I don't think they're as well coached, although they've been doing a great job with what they've got. I think the Chiefs are the better team, better coaching staff. They've got more cohesion. They were there last year. They won it all last year, but I think it's going to be an intriguing storyline if if the game itself doesn't kind of live up to it. So I, I don't know. I have a feeling the Chiefs could put up big points and blow out the Bucks, but I don't know. But it's still going to be fun anyway, and 43, and that homeboy is just fucking tearing that shit up. Good for him. So let's put this in terms I'm going to understand. Is this basically LeBron versus Luka? This is, no, this is, um, this is if Bill Russell was still playing and Michael Jordan played against him in the finals. <laughs> That's so what this Le- is. Okay, yeah. so, so not like Magic versus Jordan in the 91 finals. Because uh, Magic wasn't quite kinda, old enough yet. Yeah, not quite, but kind of. This is like if Jordan had won his first two, right? Um, and then fucking Bill Russell's Celtics, and he's like, he's like 40, <laughs> 42, 43, something like that. And Jordan's like 24, 25. And obviously the Celtics and the Bulls are in the Eastern Conference, but let's play a little bit of imagination here. Um, yeah, and they played against each other. I mean, Tony Romo said that this is like LeBron versus Jordan. You, you kind of, that's kind of it. You could kind of do that too. Like Jordan, the greatest of all time, and LeBron, the new greatest, right? It's kind of like that, but it's like if Jordan, after he's won his six rings, he comes back for that seventh season, and LeBron comes out of high school, and uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like that. Oh, yeah, what a crime that... Jordan and Pippen and Jack, Phil Jackson and company didn't come back for that seventh title. Ridiculous. I know. I know. Well, that's the thing, right? Um, you can also think about it like this. Like, Brady didn't come back with the team. He had to leave and go to a different team, right? So did they so let him go because they thought he was too old, or did he choose to leave? He chose to leave. He was a free agent. He structured it this way because he wanted to make the decision um, there was some pressure inside the organization to move on from him. There was some rumbling, some shit talking about how they could have won other games if they had a different quarterback. It was like anonymous people from within the staff and within the organization were saying like that they think that they could have won some of these other games if they had a different quarterback at the helm. And famously, the Patriot culture is a very like no fun culture. It's very strict and very disciplined. But then again, they've also the Spurs, fucking been, basically, yeah, yes. Yes, 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 exactly. And so there's also a sense in which Brady's, you know, he's won the he's won the titles, he's made the championships, but he also wanted to go out and prove it on his own away from Bill Belichick, who is kind of like the Phil Jackson or the Popovich, right? He wanted to go away and be like, one, I'm going to be in a different culture, and two, all these people are saying I'm only winning because I'm with this guy. I want to go and prove it elsewhere. And it's amazing. He leaves the team. The other team has a losing record. The Patriots had a losing record this year for the first time in like fucking 20 seasons since Brady's been with them. And then uh, they didn't make the playoffs, obviously. Losing record. Brady goes to this other team in another conference, takes the team to the Super Bowl, right? Like fucking it, – it's kind of like a, a sort of like poetic justice for him. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Yeah. And um, just to react to your philosophical point because I don't want to talk about football anymore. Uh <laughs> You know, I can't remember who said this, but um, there's this notion of what are the intrinsically valuable activities in life? And some philosopher says creations, appreciations, and relationships. <laughs> um, and 
the important point there is everyone kind of agrees that creations and relationships are intrinsically meaningful activities. Like almost everybody agrees with that, right? Like we, we, we don't think of those things as means to ends in large part, but it's that middle one that we forget about appreciations, just mm. appreciating something is itself mm. an activity and it's an intrinsically mm. meaningful one. It doesn't have to be for any other purpose. And that involves like everything from listening to music to watching a movie to watching excellence in athletics. Just appreciating mm. it is an activity that's good for its own sake. Like, did you did you see any of the highlights from LeBron's game against the Cavs the other day? Is that when he put up 46 or whatever? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, for those who haven't, if you like basketball, just go and watch the like ESPN highlights of that game. He had like a regular LeBron first half, and then someone from the Cavs organization said something to him when he missed the last second shot to end the first half. And he, in like Jordan terms, took that personally and proceeded to just torch the Cavs. He outscored the whole Cavs team in the fourth quarter. He's in like his seventh, 16th season, 17th <laughs> season, whatever it is, um, has played almost more minutes than anybody else in the history of the game and just completely torched a good team just because he felt like it. It was incredible, <laughs> incredible to watch. Yeah. He couldn't, he could not be stopped. Like he, not even just like he was making shots. He was like jumping, passing lanes, blocking the shit out of stuff, hitting fadeaway jumpers. Like it didn't even look like he was really trying that hard. He just like decided to focus. It's incredible, yeah. man. I've never seen anybody like him on the basketball court. Yeah, and you can have that kind of appreciation. It doesn't have to be like these spectacular things that we're talking about, like the career high in points or the Super Bowl in sports. Like we we fetishize those things, but it can also be like a sentence that is brilliantly written, mm. you know? Like sometimes I read a sentence and I'm like, fuck, God, I want to write a sentence <laughs> like that, you know? Like, uh, or a poem that you read that you're like, holy shit, like it just hits you. Or sometimes there's a... Uh, a smell that you come across where you're walking and you're like, what is that? And it's this fucking flower. And you're like, whoa, like, like, yeah, I think academic types tend to denigrate appreciation. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's exactly right. Like there is something really beautiful and it can be intrinsically valuable in those, those, those little appreciations of other things, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. I really like that. And I'm not yeah. going to talk anymore about that because I think that's a fucking great way to end it. That's fucking yeah. perfect. Time well spent. Hopefully you appreciated this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Look at that. We bring things full circle. A very meta of you. Uh, yeah, okay. All right, we're done. We're going to go ahead and close up. Remember, you can reach out to us any of our socials, owls underscore at underscore dawn on Insta. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, check out our merch page. Check out my show, True West. Uh, Troy, what else? Am I missing stuff? I feel like I'm forgetting to say something. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania, Mary Constance. Yeah!